So I started planning out this series. I started thinking about families and the different kinds of families we have here in the church. Uh, and I started thinking about, you know, you've got traditional family is becoming less and less traditional. And, you know, what does that mean? I started thinking about all the folks that come to church here and people that come and, and not the whole family comes to church. You know, you've got uh, mom comes and brings the kids or or dad comes and brings the kids, or maybe mom and dad come, but the kids don't come anymore, and that, that tears you up. Or maybe your parents don't go, or maybe somebody brings you, and your parents, they, they, don't, they, don't, know where you, they don't know where you are. They, they assume you're doing something good on a Sunday morning. It's hard to get in trouble on a Sunday morning, but, um, you know, I, there's a lot of different mixes, and there's a lot of different situations where you've got a family that's got mixed faith, and maybe by mixed faith we mean somebody's got faith and somebody doesn't. You know, uh, last week I had so many people asking me, where's everybody at? The answer is it's Father's Day. It's the lowest attended Sunday of the year. It is. Highest attended Sundays would be, you know, obviously Christmas, Easter. Uh, Mother's Day is the, uh, fits up there in the top three. And Father's Day is the lowest, because if dad doesn't go to church, you know, we... We normally go, but on this day, we're going to cut him some slack and we'll stay home. And it's really a sad statement about the, the status of faith in our families, but it's a real situation, and I don't have to tell you that. I, I will tell you this, that I, you know, I know that it's hard, not because I experience it. Um, I know that we really share faith in our family, Jenny and I, and, and it's a real blessing for us. And we've often thought, what would it be like if we weren't on the same page here? And the answer is, well, you know, I don't know. You know, it would be really, really difficult. And from talking with those of you that struggle with this, I know that it is difficult. You've told me that because we've prayed about it. And we've prayed for your, your spouse, your husband, maybe to come and get a little more engaged. And I, and I know that you struggle with it. And so as I thought about talking about families, I thought, you know, we're going to have to address this one. And surely Scripture's got something to say about it. And and in fact, it does. Scripture's got a lot to say about situations like that, where faith isn't the centerpiece of your home. It may be of your life, but maybe not of your home. And as I started looking through the New Testament, I came across something I knew, but I, I didn't know. You ever have one of those moments? You know, what's it like when Jesus is important, when you believe in Jesus and, and your family doesn't? And as I was going through the Gospels here in Mark chapter 3, uh, I saw this. I saw that Jesus' family didn't believe in Jesus. It's kind of, kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? It says when his family, that's Jesus' family, heard of it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying, he's got out of his mind. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. They said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. They're going to take you away someplace. Wow. Jesus' family had some doubts. How about, how about John chapter 7? We read about Jesus' brothers specifically. It says, now the Jewish festival of booths was near. So his brothers said to him, they said, leave here. Go to Judea so that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' own brothers grew up with him, didn't believe in him. But you think about it, what would that have been like to be Jesus' younger brother? I mean, it's hard to compare, you know? I mean, 
He's always like so perfect, but, <laughs> but like we know that like one time, well, no, that was Jude. I remember now. <laughs> We're sure there's something on this guy. There has to be. I mean, what would it have been like to grow up with Jesus? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he is perfect, right? He's, you know, is he, is he helping the brothers? Is he coaching them? Maybe in adolescence, is he maybe trying to help them? be a little bit better. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we don't, the scripture doesn't tell us, but wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to have seen that? Wouldn't you love to know? We know from 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Paul records all of the people Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, and lo and behold, James makes the list. James is one of the people Jesus shows up to, his own brother. Now, I don't know how that conversation went. If it had been up to me, I might have been like, see, I told you so. Um, <laughs> I don't think it went that way, but it might have. We don't have that recorded. Maybe it was a lot more compassionate. Maybe Jesus was like, you know, it would be hard to believe in your own brother, um, but here I am. I don't, I don't know how that would have gone. I don't know how that conversation went, but we do know that James didn't believe, according to the Gospels, something happens, and now we've got an epistle named James after James, the brother of Jesus. And James becomes a strong leader in the church. And so I guess I, I say all of this to say, listen, those of you that come to church alone, you're not really alone. Even Jesus' family didn't believe in Jesus. And, and we got a lot of people in that same boat. This morning, as we think about how do we, you know, how do we deal with this? How do, we, how do we act faithfully in a home where faith isn't the centerpiece? I came up with a little acrostic for you. The, uh, it's rest. It's rest. Because ultimately, I know there's a lot of pressure to, to have your family get saved. You know, I want my family to get saved. And, and who doesn't want that? But I have to say this, you know, it's not, it's not your job to do that. You don't get to do that as much as you would want to and as much as you would do that. I mean, you didn't die on the cross for anybody and you're not the Holy Spirit. And so we've got to trust and rest in God's goodness that he's going to be the one that's going to, that he's going to do the work, that he can handle it. And so let's just think about that uh, as we go through here. The, the, the R of rest is to remember, to remember the good and to celebrate it. Uh, remember the good in your spouse. Romans two fourteen through 15, we've got this on the screen too. It says, when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts to which their own conscience also bears witness. Paul here is saying, listen, there's Gentiles. These are the non-believers. Gentiles will sometimes do what God's told us to do because God's written into all of our hearts and our minds the truth about Him. Um, so, you know, obviously non-Christians act sometimes in very Christian ways. And, and sometimes non-believers act better than believers. And that's a sad testament sometimes to how Christians behave. But that's the case. And we might ask the question, well, why is it that, that people that don't believe in God do the things that God asks? Well, well, Paul answers that for us. He says, well, listen, God made us all, right? And so in our minds and in our hearts, he has put out what's right and what's wrong. And so we sort of all have this general idea of what's right and what's wrong. And when God's creations who are covered in the fingerprints of God, the scripture tells us that we are made in God's own image. When, when God's people, uh, created people, get together and they're seeking what is good, and true and beautiful, they can get kind of close to it because they've been made in the image of God. And so in a family, what, what does that look like? Well, 
you know, you might not be on the same page uh, faith-wise, but there's probably a lot of things you are on the same page. You know, you, you want the best for your kids. You want the best for your marriage. You want your family to succeed. And, and there was something that brought you two together that was really good. And so you've got to sometimes remember those things. And as you come together seeking the best, whether it's for your children or for your marriage, for your home, you can you can actually have really great conversations because you're both created in the image of God. Yes, there's going to be seismic differences and serious disagreements. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of work to consciously go back and remember the good and to celebrate it. Now, I know that that can be difficult. The second one I think is even harder, though, and that's this. It's to embrace the hope for your marriage and for your spouse. I know that it's hard to hope in a situation that seems like it won't change. It's a real struggle. You know, you've prayed, and you've prayed, and you've prayed, and then you've prayed some more, and then when you were done with that, you prayed even harder, and it feels like that prayer doesn't get answered. Paul writes to a situation just like that. The church in Corinth uh, had written to Paul, and they were struggling with this issue of mixed marriage. This, one person believes in Jesus, the other person doesn't believe in Jesus. And so they'd written to Paul because it was a problem for them. It was a real struggle for them, just like it is today. And, and it seems like the question they asked was, Paul, wouldn't it maybe be easier if we just got a divorce? I mean, our, our, our values are so different. Our outlooks on life are so different. Our perspectives on things are so different. Maybe it would just be best. If, if we called it quits. To that, Paul responds in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 and following. He says, To the rest I say, I am not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that in a second. And the unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband's. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. It is the peace that God has called you. Why, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Paul right here holds out that hope. I love that he makes it clear. He says, you might save your husband. You might save your wife. He, he doesn't say this is a promise. He doesn't say if you do this perfectly they're going to convert he doesn't say that he says this is the best chance that your partner has and so you've got to hold on to it you've got to hold on to that that faithful piece he says don't don't separate from them don't don't call it quits just because your values in this regard are, are different he says your faithfulness is what is bringing grace to your family every day that's how your your spouse is being made holy he doesn't say that just being married to you, uh, your spouse is saved. That's not what he's saying. At the end, obviously, he's saying they might be saved. Uh, they, they might be saved. But he says that there's a process here. He, he's contrasting this a little bit with what he's written previously. In the previous chapter, he'd been talking about how a relationship with a prostitute could, would defile your, your, your soul, your body, and that was bad. And he says, listen, this is different. He says, when you comes to your family and you act in faithfulness, the righteousness and the belief that you have and the faith that you have is more powerful than the doubt and the sinfulness in that of your spouse. 
He says, what is in you is greater than what's in the world. What is in your heart and in your mind, that spirit that's in you is more powerful than the unbelief and the doubt that is in your spouse. And so he says, stay faithful. Stay faithful to the, to the, the spouse that doesn't believe. Keep believing. He says, don't let that unbelieving spouse be more faithful than you are. Stay faithful. Hang in there. And, and notice, he, he's, not, he's, he's not saying it's easy. He says, there might come a time when they say, listen, this isn't working. And Paul says, if that's what it comes down to, and you've tried your best, you don't really have a choice. He says, if they're leaving, they're leaving. He says, but don't, you don't go there first. You don't go there first. He says, you are the one that's bringing grace into your home. You're the one who's making your spouse holy. You're helping to sanctify your spouse. He, he actually goes on to say, it's, it's, it's through you that your children are, are made clean. And that leads us to the S here of rest, which is to share faith with your children. Your faithfulness in your marriage is a huge testimony to your children. Without it, your, Paul says your children would be unclean. What does that mean? Does it mean that just because mommy and daddy believe in Jesus that the kids are saved? No, we know that Scripture does not teach that. Everybody's got a decision they've got to make with God for themselves. But what this Scripture is making really, really clear is that they don't stand a chance at knowing about Jesus unless you, believing mom and dad, stick it out and stay in there. Paul's referencing the legal precedent at this point in time in Rome was that if there was a divorce and there were kids involved... There wasn't a discussion. There wasn't arbitration. The kids always went with dad, always went with dad. This wasn't like an every other weekend kind of thing plus summers. It was they always went with dad. And so odds are a lot of the people in the church were women. And so Paul is looking at these women and and they're writing and they're the ones that are tore up because there's a huge value gap in their church or in their home, and they're coming to the church, and they're tore up about this. And Paul says, listen, if you left and those kids went with your spouse, they wouldn't know what faithfulness looks like. You've got to stick this out. And Paul isn't saying this is you know, a pie-in-the-sky kind of hopefulness. He knows firsthand the power of a faithful mother and a faithful wife in a home. If you go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, and he talks about how Timothy came to faithfulness. 2 Timothy 1, 5 says this. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Now, what was Timothy's dad doing? We don't know. We don't know what Timothy's dad was doing. Paul was, was polite enough to say, you know, listen, Timothy, in spite of your deadbeat father, your mom and your grandma did one heck of a job raising you. He, he doesn't say that. He just says, you remember how faithful your grandma was? Do you remember how faithful your mother was? Apparently, Timothy's dad had absolutely zero contribution to Timothy's faithful life. He, he, he contributed nothing to Timothy becoming a child of God. But here's Timothy appointed by Paul to be the preacher at this church there in the city of Ephesus, and he's out there, a a pioneer, a missionary, working hard, and Paul says, listen, that same faith that was in your mom, Timothy, that faith is in you. 
And I know that as children get older, it gets more difficult explaining why they have to come to church. And mom or dad stays home. But hang in there. What you're doing matters. Kevin Miller uh, talks about faithfulness. And he says, you know, I learned faithfulness from my mom. He said, you know, at some point in time, mom was praying. She's reading her Bible. And she came across a verse that said, you need to feed the hungry. Feed the hungry. And so she started thinking about how she would like to feed the hungry, but she didn't know anybody that was hungry. And so she thought, how am I going to feed the hungry when I don't know anybody that's hungry? And so she was praying. She's saying, God, would you help me live in obedience to this verse? Would you help me live faithfully to this? And as she started praying about it, started thinking about it, she realized that two doors down, there was a guy by the name of Mr. Beard. Mr. Beard's wife had passed about two years prior, and recently he'd gotten really, really poor health. And so he'd been struggling with health. He'd been struggling with mobility. He came from the generation where the men didn't really know much to do in the kitchen. And, and then on top of all that, he got shingles recently. And so she thought, I bet he's hungry. I bet he hasn't had a good meal in quite some time. And so that night for dinner, they were making, she was making dinner. And she said, I'm going to make an extra plate. And so that's what she did. She made an extra plate for Mr. Beard. She put it on the thing. You know, all the the food there, and she put a little salad plate there, and then she put a little bit of dessert in a cup, and then wraps it with foil, puts a towel over it, puts it in a cardboard box, and sends it with Kevin over to Mr. Beard's house two doors down. And so that happens that night, and he's thankful, and then it happens the next night. She does the same thing, just prepares an extra meal, just on a plate, nothing's fancy, just whatever they were eating, one more portion, sends it over to Mr. Beard, and this happens. Now it goes on for a week, it goes on for a month, and, and every night she'll say, Kevin, it's time for you to take that down there. And she said, Mr. Beard got to the point where he would kind of look out his window waiting for him because he, he was, in fact, hungry, and he was, this is the best meal he was going to get all day, and he looked forward to it, and they would take vacations, and she would call up neighbors and friends, and she'd say, hey, listen, Mr. Beard, he needs a a plate for dinner. Do you think you could fix him something? And that's how it went for two years. Mr. Beard had a meal every night because of Kevin Miller's mother until he eventually had to go to the nursing home because of his health. But Kevin, as he thought about it, somebody was asking him, "What, what do you think faithfulness looks like? He said, I think it looks a lot like my mom. And friends, that's how that works. These quiet insignificant acts, things that you're not doing a whole lot about it. It's not a grand gesture. It's just a small sacrifice. It does not go unnoticed. It's through quiet acts of faithfulness that Peter uh, reminds us, as he's talking to the wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, that that's how the husbands are going to get convinced. He says this, he says, wives in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter's saying, listen, you need to testify with your life to your spouse. And it's through that that Peter and Paul both say they might be won over. This is the best chance you've got. And I'll say this, this... this this is going to sound weird, but I'll tell you, you maybe don't know how much your faithfulness means to your unbelieving spouse. I say that because we were having a conversation one time with this gal who was facing a real struggle in, just in her life and her family's life, and she and her husband were dealing with this problem. She went to church. He didn't go to church. She believed in God. He wasn't quite sure what he thought about God. And as they're talking about this, as they're going through this family struggle... He said to her, he said, have you prayed about this? Because I think you should. 
it, it caught her off guard. I mean, she about fell out of her char- chair. She wasn't quite sure what to do about it. Now, he's not been to church, but there was something in her prayer life that he respected. And he said, you know what? I, I see that that does something for you. There's some power there. There's something that's significant. She did that as she just lived faithfully. As she was just a faithful person in the presence of her husband. And if you do get a chance to talk about your faith, we know that a good treatise, leaving out good literature, books, all those things probably doesn't work the way that you would like for it to. Having good conversations about what God is saying to your spouse is less effective than about what God is saying to you as a person. I think of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 29, who when she evangelizes the whole village, she says, come meet a man who told me everything I, I ever did about myself. I'm wondering if this, could this guy be the Messiah? She just offers that testimony, asks a question, not a big sermon. A big sermon doesn't work, right? But if you get that opportunity to have a conversation, I would say this, be as gracious to them as you would be to any other non-Christian. And that can be hard. Familiarity breeds content, doesn't it? And sometimes it's harder to be kind to your family than to strangers. I don't know about you, but I'm a better uh, father in public. I am. I'm so much better at being a parent in public. I'm so much better at being a husband in public. Well, sure, honey, I'd love to run out to the car and get your purse that you've left in it. Not that that happens. I'm told some people do that sort of thing. Oh, I'd love to do that. Actually, I was hoping that I, I could do that. That's how we are in public, right? We should extend that same politeness and kindness and courteousness to our family all the time. I don't think it's a coincidence that just a few verses after Peter tells wives that they're going to win their husbands over with purity and reverence, just a few verses later, he writes this. He says, In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, including your spouse, to give the reason for the hope you have, but... Do this, read it with me, with gentleness and respect. That's key. Gentleness and respect. That's, I, I think if we can rest in God, if we can remember and, and, and hold on to those really good things and celebrate those, if we can embrace hope, if we can share faith with our kids and the people we can uh, share our faith with, and if we can testify with our lives, I really think that's the best way that any of us have a, a chance to help to, to bring those people in our families uh, that are doubting over. This morning, I, I wanted to share with you what, um, what I believe Scripture has to say about this issue. I also want to spend some time, and I'd like to pray right now for, uh, for our families, those of you that are here that are struggling. So if you'd bow your heads with me, I'd like to do that. Gracious Lord, this morning, I lift up to you every wife that's here without her husband. I lift up to you every husband that's here uh, without his wife. I lift up to you every uh, mother and father that are here without their kids and every child that's here without their parents. And Lord, I know in each of them, they've got a deep desire for husband or wife, son or daughter or mom and dad to come to faith with you. Lord, we love our family. We, we enjoy spending time with them. We want to spend eternity with them. And so it's, it's painful to think about that separation. 
God, even in the day-to-day, just making decisions when values are so different, it's a real struggle. And so, Lord, I pray for the the wife and the husband and the the father, the the mother, the son, the daughter that is here right now, that you would give them that gentleness and respect that Peter talks about. Lord, I pray that you would equip them to share their faith with their life first and with answers second. And Lord, for the husband that's slept in this morning and for the wife that's slept in this morning and for the mom or the dad that's not here, the son or the daughter that's decided this isn't something important to them anymore. God, we pray that your spirit would go and would convict them. Lord, we're not Jesus. We're not the Holy Spirit. You you are. You're, you're doing a great job of that, Lord. And so we would ask that you would convict them. God, we don't want to pray bad things on people, but sometimes it's through challenges and sometimes it is through adversity that that people come to realize that they desperately need you. And so, Lord, whatever it would take, if you could just get a hold of these people, of these husbands, of these wives, of these, of these fathers, these mothers, these sons, these daughters, Lord, would you get a hold of them and draw them back to you? And, Lord, help us to be people of grace that extend your grace, that show your grace, that live out your grace, and that testify to the presence of your grace. And, God, we want this for them and we want this for your glory, and we do. We want this for ourselves as well, because we love these people. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd be acting in these homes right now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.